You already know that Illegal Pete's makes delicious, mission-style Mexican food. But did you know that Illegal Pete's uses its marketing funds to support Colorado creative talent that we love? We support the Denver Diatribe Podcast, the Grolix Comedy Showcase, Rocky Mountain Roller Girls, the Yellow Designs BMX Stunt Team, Apex Movement Parkour Team, the Underground Music Showcase, and more. We even have our own record label, The Greater Than Collective, with albums by The Epilogues, Snake Rattle Rattlesnake, Esme Patterson, Ian Cook, and comedian Ben Roy, and a starving artist program that feeds out-of-town bands traveling in Colorado for free. Illegal Pete's. We're more than just a restaurant. So, let us put our food and music and comedy and sports inside you. Please. Please. Denver, Denver, I'm from Denver, 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 I'm from Denver, 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 Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly podcast of news, culture, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most construction-filled city between the West Rail Line and the East Rail Line. I'm Joel Warner, and joining me today at the Daniels of Fisher Clock Tower is co-host Josh Johnson. Hi, Josh. How's it going, Joel? Going well. Also joining us is very special guest, Ken Schruppel, instructor at the University of Colorado Denver's College of Architecture and Planning. But um, he's also the development guru behind both DenverInfill.com and DenverUrbanism.com. Um, and he's going to talk about some of the construction that's been going on all over town. Um, yep. I, it's, I think, at least for me, I often see construction as an annoyance, things that block me from getting from, from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of shake your fist at it and get annoyed and so it would be easy to get annoyed at everything going on around town these days between the rail lines and the development and the construction. But um, I think there's also something bigger going on lately. And I think in some ways it's kind of surprising that's happening here in Denver. And Ken is the perfect guy to talk about this. But before we do, Ken, um, I want you to just kind of uh, talk a bit about your background. Because I think what you've been able to do with your blogs is actually really exciting, especially in this day and age where everyone's talking about how media is dying and whatnot. So just right. give a br- kind of brief background. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks, Joel uh, and Josh, for inviting me. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, I guess in terms of my background, really, I've always been fascinated by cities and particularly cities as they change and grow. And so um, that's really kind of what first got me started on doing Denver Infill because um, I started it in 2004, and downtown Denver and, you know, the whole region was going through quite a bit of uh, growth and, you know, real estate development. And there was so much going on in downtown Denver that I thought, you know, there ought to be a website where you could go to where you could kind of get information on all these different projects in kind of a consistent, cohesive uh, way. And that didn't really exist. And so I thought, "Eh, I'll go ahead and just do it myself. And so I did that. Uh, meanwhile, my day job, you know, I've been working uh, for the last 12 years as an urban planning consultant. Um, I now teach full-time, uh, as you mentioned, in the uh, College of Architecture and Planning in our Master's of Urban and Regional Planning program. Uh, and then I kind of just try to make, make myself um, as busy as possible with all sorts of other urban things, you know, uh, tracking this and that and serving on various boards and committees and uh, having a good time while I'm doing it, too. I think in some ways, honestly, Ken, I think you're you're downplaying what you've been able to do with these blogs. I mean, really, honestly, 
your blogs have become the paper of record for development in and around Denver. I mean, if anyone breaks anything about new construction or whatnot, it's almost always on one of your sites. Mm-hmm. And between that and also even just writing about what what this means from like a bigger picture perspective, no one no one being employed by you know a quote unquote news organization is covering this stuff like you are, mm-hmm. and you've never gotten paid for it. Well, I haven't gotten monetary payment for it, yeah. um, but it certainly has opened a lot of doors for me. Yeah, it seems um, like it's almost kind of changed your your trajectory. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I when I started it, it was I had no grand plans uh, for this. In fact, it was just a hobby. I thought that maybe a half dozen, you know, kind of construction urban geeks like myself would would get into it, and that would be about that, that would be it. Um, but it really it did kind of take off. And which is good because I think, first of all, that's indicative of the fact that there's real interest in this topic and that people are excited about living in Denver and what's going on here. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, but then just for me personally, it kind of catapulted me into this spotlight that I was not really seeking, but I'm happy to occupy nevertheless. And I use it as my, you know, my little platform to preach the gospel of urbanism and uh, you know, um, uh, promoting Denver and, and development and, and all these things. And so, um, yes, I, I do not receive payment, f- you know, for it uh, in terms of monetary payment. But it's done great things for me personally, and I'm happy that it's it's given me a, a great opportunity to kind of give back to the city and to um, contribute uh, in this capacity. And in full disclosure, I have to admit. Um, for the five years I was a staff writer at Westward newspaper, I don't think I had any other sources that provided me with more successful feature ideas than you did, Ken. And in some ways, I think that's that's got a testament to how you see all this. I mean, yes, you do report on new development. You do report on how many units are going up. But you also have this both, both a reporter's eye but also a professor's eye mm-hmm. in terms of seeing what all this means. What does it mean that we here in Denver have still have all these surface lots downtown? What does it mean that we're looking at transforming Denver Union Station? You, you've always been really good at kind of taking what I think for a lot of people is a really dry topic, which is development and planning, but saying, no, there's some really fascinating stuff going on. And that's kind of what I wanted to bring you in today to kind of yeah. talk about some of the developments that we see going on, but also talk about like, well, what it means for those of us who live here in the future that we're going to be seeing. Yeah, and that's a really good point. In fact, it's really one of the things I think gives me the most satisfaction out of what I do. Um, there's kind of the nuts and bolts aspect of development, you know, the number of units, how big of the building is it, how much it costs, kind of just the the, uh, the the real specific kind of project information that we do deliver on Denver Infill. And that's kind of always been part of what we've done from the beginning. And so if you're just looking for kind of uh, straightforward information, almost kind of an encyclopedia approach toward development or uh, a database of sorts, you know, you can go to Denver Infill and and get that information. Um, So there's always been kind of just this objective aspect of what we do there. Every project that we track, we provide you with this information. And we just get that straight from the developer or whatever the source is, and we just kind of report it and put it all together in kind of one place, right? That was kind of the original intent. But what really gives me the satisfaction is not so much just all the facts and figures, but 
it's that historical perspective. It's putting it within a larger context. That's what's really compelling to me because when I see cities and I experience cities, whether it's Denver or some other uh, community, um, I don't see it as just this a collection of standalone real estate development projects. I see it as you know this organic environment that has developed over decades or centuries or millennia that has created this particular place where I am at that point in time and kind of been experiencing it. And then to kind of think about how that evolved and, and all the components and the people who contributed to it and uh, the ups and downs of that community over you know a, a long period of time. And it's kind of that historical aspect of, of cities and development that I, I is, am really attracted to. And so one of the classes that I teach in the program at UCD is a class that really focuses exactly on that. Um, it's called Urban Spatial Analysis. And within it, um, there's a component about urban morphology, which is essentially the study of the urban form, kind of the urban fabric of cities and how that changes over time. And what are the forces that um, have caused that change, whether it's technological or economic or social, you know. So I view this topic not just as, um, you know, just a bunch of real estate development projects. You know, we, we do report that. But always what's going on in my mind is how is this, uh, how is what's going on right now in Denver, whether it's real estate development or things like transit or improved bicycle and pedestrian uh, uh, infrastructure, how are all of these things contributing to city building? To, to the evolution of Denver as a place, uh, and where are we in that evolution, and yeah. how do we compare to other cities? Not necessarily in a competitive sense, but just you know, looking at a city like Boston that has a 250-year head start on Denver, right? Yes. And say, well, you know, how are we at at our point in time compared to where they are now and where they were? And obviously, you have technology and all sorts of different changes. So it's not a direct comparison, but I just love looking at cities and thinking about how they've evolved, where they are, where they're going, and kind of the million little components that contribute to that evolution. Yeah. Well, the, the component I want to focus on first with you is probably the most timely, which is the opening of the West Rail Corridor, which mm -hmm. is happening this weekend, this Saturday. Right. Uh, so let's talk about, for those folks who don't understand what, Railroads are. What is what is the West Rail Corridor? Where does it go from, and where does it go to? And what does it mean that all of a sudden now we all of a sudden we have a whole new rail line sure. opening in Denver? Well, the West Line is RTD's newest light rail line. Um, so you know, currently, um, as of now, because it doesn't technically open for another couple of days, we have uh, about 35 miles of light rail. Uh, so we have the southeast line, you know, down along I-25. We have the southwest line down to Littleton. And then we have the, uh, uh, as they come into downtown, they kind of split. And you have the line that goes kind of into the central Platte Valley to Union Station. And then the other one that goes up into Five Points. And so um, when the, uh, th this line that's opening up on Friday is another 12-mile um, light rail line that will stretch from Union Station and head west through West Denver and through Lakewood, uh, roughly along kind of about the 13th Avenue alignment, so kind of just a little south of Colfax. And then as it gets kind of a little western, uh, further west in Lakewood, it kind of dips down to the Federal Center. So you've probably seen the big bridge over uh, 6th Avenue Expressway. 
Yeah. That's the light rail bridge going over um, uh, that highway. And then once it gets from um, the federal center, then it kind of heads out along 6th Avenue out to the Jefferson County uh, Government Center. Which is um, a, and by the way, it's a giant bridge over there. On the yeah, it is. It's pretty dramatic. Um, so, you know, that's it. What, what, what it represents is essentially it's a, um, you know, it's an extension of uh, the city's uh, growing uh, rail transit network. Um, it's also the first line to be completed under RTD's Fast Tracks program, which voters approved in 2004 with a four-tenths of a percent sales tax. Um, and there are several other lines currently under construction that we'll probably maybe talk about still today. Um, so it's significant in that sense that it's it demonstrates the progress of the Fast Tracks program, and we now have kind of check one off the list as we continue to kind of work on the rest of those lines. Um, but, again, kind of going back to the bigger picture, yes, it's a train line and yep. allow you to go from point A to point B without a car. That's great. Um, but it also, I think, is, is um, important in the bigger context that this is changing and will change how people think about getting from point A to point B. Uh, up until now, for the people who live in Lakewood and Golden area, um, you know, if they want to come downtown Denver, they pretty much need to drive or they're willing to commit uh, to the time and logistics that it would take to arrive by bus. And depending on if they live near, you know, bus route or how that might work for them, you know, that was always their option. Um, but, you know, clearly a, a, a light rail train is more, uh, it's, it's, quick, it's more quicker uh, in terms of the speed. It's more pleasant of, of a journey. Um, and it doesn't get hung up in traffic, and it's not slowed down by snowstorms and rainstorms and things like that. So it's, it's a great way to travel. And so it really represents now a new choice, and that's what really what transit is. It's not intended to replace the car. Uh, it's intended to give people more choices in terms of their transportation options. And just like bike sharing, uh, which has, you know, um, really spread quickly throughout Denver. We were the first major city in the United States to have a bike sharing system. That's yet another option. And so as we look at these things um, like light rail, bike sharing, car sharing, uh, pedicabs, you know, <laughs> downtown, um, these are all options. And so, you know, along with the automobile and the bus, and that's what really it's, it's about, is giving people options. We've, we, we've always had, uh, historically, cities offered those options. You know, Denver had an extensive streetcar system back in the day. Uh, and we, we got rid of it all. And we, we really went so far to an extreme where we put ourselves in a position and we, we, we built our suburban environments and even parts of the outlying parts of the city in such a manner that you really had no choice. You simply had to drive everywhere. We segregated land uses. So rather than being able to walk to a store uh, or walk to a restaurant or walk to, you know, wherever, you, you had to drive because we put all the commercial clustered over here and then we put all the residential clustered over there, and then we built in all the office buildings and the big office park over there, and they're all separated by, you know, three, five, ten miles, and so you were forced to have to drive everywhere. And that to me is one of the most fascinating aspects, and also probably one of the most frustrating aspects, that it seemed like folks got it right the first time. Yeah. You know, that American cities were in large, you know, in a large way, shaped by this concept of the, the streetcar suburbs, you know, in, in 
including Denver. And yeah. then all of a sudden, like, no, we just want to get rid of all of this. And then not even that long after, you know, uh, when was the last streetcar? I mean, there's these great, those great big books that that describe the last years of yeah. the streetcar. 1950. The last, you know, it's not that long after. Like, oh, wait a second. Let's go back and redo everything that we had the first time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not just the transportation piece, but again, it's, that, it's the, the land use that I was just talking about, kind of the separation of land uses. Um, historically, cities were always mixed use. You had a building that had uh, ground floor uses, often retail, and then you had those you know, floors above it that had, you know, they were apartments or offices, you know, or maybe a hotel or whatever. And so that's the way cities developed. And you can trace that development pattern all the way back to the most ancient cities in, you know, Middle East and in Europe. And, and so the, the evolution of cities as the, these kind of natural mixed-use places, uh, I mean, you can understand why that would be a total natural thing for humans to do. Because if you need to do function X or need something here, and then you later on that day or a few minutes later or whatever need something different, you know, in terms of a land use, well, why would you put that 20 miles away or five miles away when you have to, you know, your transportation uh, options are limited to walking or riding a horse or something like that? And so naturally, everything became much close together. You didn't spread everything out. Because the transportation op options that you had pre-automobile were really, you know, limited to a much slower pace. Life existed at, you know, three, five, ten miles an hour. Yeah. So you naturally put things together. And so it made sense to have what we would call vertical mixed use, right, where you have in one building, you know, something on the ground floor and something different on the floors above it. But what the automobile did was that it allowed us to um, – you know, it was revolutionary in its ability to give people transportation that was much more, you know, much quickly, more, uh, more quicker, right? In other words, you could, you could get from point A to point B that normally it maybe would have taken you, you know, all day to travel. Now you can get there in, you know, half an hour, so at, at much greater speeds. So that then allowed for us to be able to say, well, we don't have to have all these different uh, uses all mixed together in this kind of tight, dense environment. We can spread things out and we can segregate uses. So we can put all the office stuff over here and we can put all the residential over there. Well, and that's exactly what we did after, after World War II with the suburban uh, boom in this country. Um, well, and then when you do that, people still need to, though, access all those land uses during the course of their day. They still need to go to the store, they need to go to school, they need to go home, and they need to go to work. Well, when those four things are separated by miles and miles and miles, you can't walk them, you can't bike them, and unless the transit infrastructure is there, you can't take transit readily, and so you, let, you have no choice. You just have to simply drive everywhere. And then we essentially, you know, half destroyed our cities in the process because now we weren't building cities for people. We were building cities for cars. Yeah. Right. So this all comes back to our love of the car in some ways. I mean, we love cars. Yeah. It's you know? not so much the love of cars. It's the dependency on cars. I love cars, too. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing better than getting behind the wheel on a wide open highway and sure. kind of having fun, right? Yeah. So cars are great inventions, and nobody is suggesting that we should get rid of them. It's just that what we've done is, is over a half century of planning and development, we built cities that required you 
to have to have a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and one-third of the population does not drive. What was the growing, logic it's behind growing. that? I think I saw, I saw the stats today that actually, especially young people, the percentage owning a car is readily decreasing. Yeah. Now, when I say one-third don't drive, I mean, I want to be clear that this is of the total population. So we're talking about uh, people under 16 years of age, right, who legally— Who shouldn't be driving. Who shouldn't be driving, right. <laughs> um, Kids. You, you've got, you know, older folks who are simply too old to drive or people who have medical conditions— uh, who cannot drive, uh, people with, you know, mental or other, uh, you know, conditions or any, t- the, any type of disability. But these people still have to get around. Yeah. And then you have people who are, uh, who cannot, uh, who are too uh, uh, poor to drive. I mean, they, they can't afford to own an automobile. And then you have the people who uh, do not want to drive. So when you add all that up, it, it's about a third of the population are not people who drive. I, so I, I just can't understand why... Um, planners after World War II would see it as a good idea to plan a city that was dependent on a car. Like, does, was that just overlooked? Or was everybody excited because people could afford cars? And it, was, it was like, oh, everybody's going to have a car. That's the future. Yeah. It was really, I think, about um, an excitement uh, about, about the automobile. Right. Um, I don't think – imagine, imagine if, if tomorrow it's announced that we've developed – transporter technology and we can now you know beam ourselves from point or at to least point a hoverboard a. yeah can something we have right? a hoverboard something so, something transformative right okay well we would be as a society so so excited about that we would probably you know go crazy and we would start to radically perhaps change the way we do things and change our environment in response to this technological advancement sure well uh and then you know 40 years, 50 years later, we might look back and go, what were we thinking? This by, is a pain. By doing, by changing, you know, by eliminating all the streets because we have flying cars now. <laughs> yeah. we, you know, we thought that was a good idea at the time. But now there's another good reason to maybe have streets. And we've ri- we ripped them all out. And so now we have to go back and we have to try to, like, repave, you know, all these roads and stuff uh, because, you know, we got rid of them because we have flying cars. Right. So I think that's really what was going on at the time. Um, I think that, that planners and developers and policymakers who were shaping, shaping the built environment um, saw this as this, this is, you know, um, a transformative advancement. We now have the ability to be able to get into a metal box and transport ourselves with no physical effort whatsoever from point A to point B at really quite remarkable speeds. Mm -hmm. And so we just simply started to uh, change the way we build cities. And it wasn't just that some people have the opportunity to put themselves in that metal box and go from point A to point B at a high speed. Uh, it wasn't like the astronauts where, yeah, we've been to the moon, but you know, there's only a, a few dozen people who can claim that. This was a technology that was available to pretty much anybody, or mm-hmm. at least the vast majority of, of society, thanks to Henry Ford and mm-hmm. his assembly machine, right? So, uh, you, you know, so this was something that was just like you know, millions and millions of people had this opportunity. And so we were like, well, we, we have to accommodate the automobile. And so, again, we stopped building cities for people, and we started building cities for cars. So we tore down buildings to make parking lots, and we widened streets that used to be able to accommodate the flow of people and traffic. 
um, horses and buggies and cars or, uh, you know, bikes and people walking and stuff. And now, you know, they had to accommodate these significantly larger machines. To me, one of the most interesting examples here in Denver is this this concept that, that took hold for a while, which is everyone should, should be one level above the streets when they walk around, right? Mm-hmm. How there's this idea of, like, we should we should basically make the urban core filled with pedestrian bridges mm-hmm. and uh, elevated kind of walkways around buildings. And you still see some of this around town. Yeah, a little you bit. You see, you know, you see kind of elevated parks even in some places. But now it's exactly opposite. No, we, we want pedestrians on the street. We want right. people interacting with a diversity of, of movement. Yeah, isn't it better for commerce? If it's mixed use as opposed to I get into a car, I drive to a parking lot, and I go into one store. But instead I I find parking on the street and walk through a downtown atmosphere to get to a store and and cross the paths of other businesses along the way. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So we're now making amends. We're now – Denver is going full force on bringing back some of these rail lines. And as we talked about, um, the West Corridor – Opens this Saturday, and people are excited about it. But I also know there's been a bit of there's a few complaints that I've read about in terms of folks saying there's not enough, there's not really parking nearby some, some like stations room. or like, convenience. <laughs> and so my question is, are these valid complaints, or do we always see this with new kind of rail line stations? Is this just the nature of how they had to build these lines in areas where that were already developed, and you can't always put massive parking lots right next to light rail stations. Right. Maybe you don't want massive parking lots right next to light yeah, rail Yeah, no, stations. there's a good reason to argue that you, you may not want massive parking lots next to the, the train stations. But, um, well, first of all, I think that there's always a segment of the population who's looking for any opportunity to complain yeah, about right? something. Especially when it's something new. I never complain sort of about change. anything. Yeah. I don't know about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're never going to please everybody. And it's not like RTD has an unlimited budget either, right? I mean, considering the recession and uh, some of the cost overruns uh, in terms of um, uh, materials, uh, construction materials that occurred after RTD figured out what the, what the Fast Tracks program was going to cost and then the skyrocketing cost of concrete and steel and, and copper and things like that, uh, along with the decreased revenues um, due to the economy, you know, I mean, that kind of made it really tough on RTD. So they are delivering what they, uh, you know, as best as they can. But it's not going to be a gold-plated system, and it's not going to have every bell and whistle that will make people happy. Bar cars? No yeah, bar cars? No bar cars. Oh. And even if you had every bell and whistle, again, there's going to be people out there are going to find some reason to complain. Uh, so I don't really worry about that. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a good system. It's viable, it's reliable, and uh, RTD delivered this line on time and on budget, and it's going to open, and it will be integrated with the rest of our system, as will the upcoming lines. And, it, again, it's, it's giving people options, and in the long term, it's going to change the development patterns of the city where uh, we will be developing less new neighborhoods and communities out on kind of the far-flung edges of the city, particularly ones not near uh, a rail line. And instead, more and more development over time will be occurring along rail lines as kind of the new organizing feature for how we build the metro area out. 
I want to talk a bit about how this fits into a larger system in terms of the other lines as well as what lies in the middle, which is Union Station. Uh, but, but before I do, uh, I want to give a shout-out to our listeners. Um, folks, if you ever want to share thoughts about light rail or anything else, please leave a comment on denverdiatribe.com. Like us on Facebook. Drop us a line at 720-282-YELL. Um, so as you said, I mean, this is far from the only rail that's being constructed right now, and you actually threw out some impressive numbers before we started in terms of the number of miles that are being built, or that are still being built concurrently right. with, uh, today. Yeah. So, you know, we have the, the, we have the southeast and the southwest lines, right? And those have been up, up and running for several years. The west line now is coming on board in, in a couple of days. Um, currently under construction are uh, several more lines um, the east corridor to DIA is well under construction, and as you head out kind of along I-70, and particularly as you head up by uh, along Pena Boulevard and uh, up by the airport, you can see clear evidence of that with bridges and things under construction. Uh, and that's a new uh, commuter rail line, so it's a little heavier gauge train than the light rail that we have now. Uh, but that's a line that's under construction, and that, and that will open in uh, early 2016. And that'll take you from DI, from Union Station right into the terminal at DIA, 35 minutes. Which is amazing. I cannot wait. Was it supposed to be originally in 2015, or is it always 2016? Uh, you know, there was some talk that if 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 the um, construction goes well and so forth, that they might be able to have it open in 2015. But it would be like like November, December, kind of right at the end of the year. But they're they're aiming for like spring of 2016. And the train's not going to run between the legs of the Blue Hell Demon. Uh, the no. Demons. No? No. It's too bad. No. Okay. Uh, so, so, that's, so that's one line, the East Corridor, and that's like 23 miles, something like that. Also under construction is the Gold Line, which goes from Union Station to Arvada and Wheat Ridge, uh, terminating kind of along Ward Road. It's kind of out uh, western part of um, uh, Arvada and Wheat Ridge. And uh, that's under construction, and I think that's like a 12- or 13-mile line uh, also. And then there's short segments of the Northwest Line and the North Metro Line that are under construction, kind of just a, a few miles. Uh, but, but at least they're kind of the starter uh, segments of those two lines. And then... And do, do they plan on continuing with those? Well, the, the continuation of those two lines, um, those are two of the lines that are still, uh, they're identifying where they're going to get the money to pay. So it's kind of like a teaser. Yeah, and they're... You'll get more of this. Yeah, but they're putting in place the kind of the the first segment that at least not only kind of gets that line going and kind of gets those communities engaged with the, you know, a a new line, but they also, you know, kind of serves... uh, They they need to kind of put in all that infrastructure now um, as it relates to all of the other lines coming in so that, you know, you're not trying to build a line right next to an operating line, you know, uh, in the future. So it's kind of good to get all that stuff underway right now. And then the I-225 line is under construction, which goes from the the nine-mile station where the the current line ends uh, up I-225 through Aurora and ends at Peoria and Smith Road, which is where it ties into and interfaces with the east line out to DIA which means that you will actually be able to do, once that line is finished, you'll be able to do a full circle. You'll be able to go from downtown along the southeast corridor 
take the line, then that goes up I-225, all the way back up to I-70, and then transfer to the uh, east line and take that back into Union Station. So, you know. Um, so when a you wild added, day that would be. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> so, but, but, if you, <laughs> but, you know. So, so wait, so are you saying, so in total there be, was it like 70 miles that are currently being constructed? Yeah, there's like, let's see, 23 and 12 and and 10 and like another 6 or 7. And then if you count the 12 out to Golden, which, you know, it's technically still under construction for two more days, uh, you know. I it's mean, been ready for months, though, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. They've yeah. been doing testing. But anyway, yeah. yeah, it's somewhere like 50, 50, 60 miles or so that's under construction right now, which I think probably puts Denver at number one in the country in terms of the number of total um, track miles of, of transit that's under construction. Which is right absolutely now. crazy, especially because it's not something that we think about in terms of Denver being a real city. And so this is... It's a Denver huge, is a real city, damn it. Damn it. <laughs> but it's, I mean, I think it's, this, is, this is a radical transformation. Mm-hmm. And if all goes as planned, it will radically transform the city. Right. If all goes as planned. So the, I know one question is, are we going to see the ridership numbers that they want to see. I mean, how have the numbers been the past few years, and do they indicate that more and more people are using these alternative options? Well, so far, every time that RTD has opened a line, the ridership has exceeded their projections. Oh, wow. So Is that just because they're being really conservative? Uh, yeah, could be. They're like, maybe three people will show up. They're really <laughs> yeah, low self-esteem exactly. about it. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Uh, but, you know, they also have to, um, uh, they also have to though, um, have realistic ridership projections because that's what the federal government looks at in terms of their um, willingness to help fund some of these lines. So if you're too conservative on your projection, the numbers won't be high enough to qualify for federal funding. If you're too... Uh, you know, uh, optimistic There's on your projections. Spot. Then, yeah. and then if you don't meet them, then everybody goes, "Oh, what the hell? You you know, over way overestimated that." So, yeah, yeah you got to find the sweet spot. And they're not, they're not trying to, you know, kind of fudge um, the numbers. Fudge right? numbers. So, too much. I, I don't want to. I don't want to sound overly critical by any means. And I'm really excited about the line going out to DIA. Um, and I've heard complaints, you know, for people that are visiting that that's one of the things about Denver that they find really annoying is that the airport is way in the outskirts and there's no mm-hmm. reasonable there's no line like they're building to to get downtown and i suspect that once they have this line they'll get more conventions downtown and and, and the like Probably. so why is it taking so damn long like can't if if it's like we're almost like we're losing money every day that there's not a rail line downtown from the airport so josh where are you going help i'm out your... of work i'd be happy to um <laughs> lend a hand <laughs> Um, it's just we before we grab do your, the mics live. Grab we your John about Henry Hammer and go out there. Now, the you, the Chinese, say... like I mean, the Chinese would have this done in four months, and it's going to take two and a half years. Yeah, well, actually, it's like four years. It's, see, even worse, two and a half years from now, though, yeah. before it opens, yeah, right? No, it's still a good two and a half years away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, <laughs> why does it take four years to go fifty miles? Like, I mean, I drive out there and I love watching the progress because you can see like so, the. I'm the, so excited about it. That's you can see the question. concrete ties lying beside, and it all looks like it's in certain areas very well graded. The bridges are going up. Um, I don't understand what the holdup is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially since when we're going this line that went west, it's been. Pretty much done for like how many four to six months? Probably about now? six months. Yeah, and, and so it takes run, six months. And they don't have to run tests. It's kind of more exciting if they just see what happens on the first day. <laughs> have they know? been to India? <laughs> yeah, you <right>. know, 
Um, but I, I mean, I guess, I guess my question is, is why, why do these things, why really do they take so long? Is it a big, is it that bureaucracies move slow or is, I'm sure it's part of it. Um, right. it, it really, I think it's, it's just from a construction as a construction project and as an, and an engineering project, it's simply just a lot bigger than I think that you're thinking. Now, you are you are experiencing. In other words, Josh, you're stupid. I look when I'm driving. Now, think about it this way. Down Pena Boulevard. So you are every time you've gone from downtown to the airport, you've experienced that journey at 60 miles an hour. Right. Okay. Right. Now, but you don't build a highway at 60 miles an hour. You know. No. Every square of concrete, every tie that's pounded and, you know, nailed to the ground, you know, I mean, every wire, every pole, every, every little element is laid, you know, by hand uh, or by a machine, but at a particular point right here, right sure. now. Sure. So walk, what I want you to do, Josh, is next time I want you to walk to DIA. Down the, down, can I walk through the construction? However, wherever you want to get there, <laughs> yeah. it's your choice. Follow the route, though, but, but yeah, right. walk to DIA and then see if they're done will, by the time I get there. Yeah, you will understand, I think, the scale of of the project. Right, I, and I don't mean to, you know, belittle the the, the scale, as you say, um, but you know, there's a lot of people out of work. Yeah, and it you know, this is actually like this taking, is something really. This is actually gonna is taking less time than it would have because it's being up, it's being constructed under what's called a design build. In other words, uh, what's traditionally been the approach is that you do. Full design, 100% design on a project where you have construction drawing and engineering documents that show you every last little thing that you're going to do right down to the last detail, and then you start construction. Design build is where you get about you know a third or so of the way into design, kind of basic design, and then you start building it, and then you work on the details that, frankly, you're not going to build get around to building for right. like, you know, a year or two down the road. Right. Um, you, you're, so you're kind of always designing, you know, like a, a six months or so a year in advance of what you, of when you actually will start to build it. Right. So design build shaves off a few years. And there's no risk of getting two thirds done and going, shit, we should have gone the other way. No, no. no. Now um, the other thing though, the, the other way that I, I was thinking about your question, which is why did it take so long? Yeah. You could look at it from your perspective, which you were saying is, you know, it's like just the, the literal length of time to build it but you could also ask what's taken us so long historically to, to build get the line. yeah and so, that's and that's i guess really where my frustration lies is it's not the waiting the four years it's the waiting the, the, the 20 the 15, yeah, 20 yeah. years yeah so dia opened in 1995 right so it's hard to believe but it will be 20 years uh in fact it'll be almost 21 years uh, when this line opens yeah. into the, this, our new airport that I still kind of always it, think of it as still new. Feels really yeah, cool. right, you do. Well, you see, well, I mean, when you've got places like like LaGuardia, which is like 400 years old, yeah. it, you know, it's been there since before there were freaking airplanes, it still feels really new. When you it's also DIA. white and looks very clean, yes. our yeah. airport. Yeah, you know. and they do a good job of keeping, uh, you know, taking care of it. I yeah, think. it's in great shape. I'm proud of the airport. So they, there was some serious discussion back in the late 80s when they were doing the planning for DIA um, to build a rail line from downtown to the terminal as part of the project. But there was this little thing called the um, United Airlines Automa Automated Baggage System. Oh, that was the, the luggage, early luggage the, Right. Problem. I was going to make a joke about that. that it really that, plays that into that this. screwed up? Well, that the... caused the airport to be delayed by two years and go $2 billion over budget. Yeah. 
That's amazing. So $2 billion? Yeah, originally DIA was supposed to be like, oh, I'm trying to remember now, like 2.8, and it ended up being like 4.9, or I don't know, I can't oh, remember the numbers oh, now man. anymore. But, but, but what happened was, was that once the city realized that there were some issues going on out at the airport that was causing the project to uh, go over budget and way past its original opening, um, any any talk of building a rail line to DIA was was pretty much um, squashed at that point. I mean, it was just like, yeah, we're we're not going to take that on now when we're having problems just getting the yeah. the damn right. thing open. I'm, so, anyway. I'm go- I move on. But but Is you know what? One final yeah, po- sure. thought on that. So we're we're spending 1.2 billion dollars to build the line from downtown to DIA. Had we done it as part of the project, it probably would have been two three hundred million. <sighs> That's, 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 that's insane. That, that's the worst. I don't. I don't like hearing that. You know, maybe four hundred million. I'm a liberal. I like spending tax money. It's my favorite thing to do. But still, that that kills me. I, I like I like uh, public transportation. When I was in Europe, I was just always really admired how well it worked. And and I wonder why we don't have it. And yeah. and I think that I think that um and and please I'm like this, I'm, this is a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a broader demographic of people in Europe use public transportation than in the states. Sure. Right. Yeah. So I think that the people that are like you know have the money and are in the positions of of you know I don't know waging campaigns um, they're happy taking their car up. I mean, why if we had something up at I seventy quarter, I think it would be a boon right. for right. tourism. I want to move. You on. can get off if you could get off at the airport and get on public transit and end up in Summit County. Mm-hmm. I, I, that'll be huge someday. If yeah. we don't have flying yeah. cars first, I'm gonna move on a bit. I want to talk just briefly about Union Station. I, um, sure, that's something I was hoping to because of because of, of the timing of this. But I, you know, I think as everyone has been kind of watching uh, all this exciting stuff going up in and around Union Station, which is as you've put it rather eloquently in the past, it's kind of Denver's gateway. It always has been since it first opened, and it's where for folks who uh, went off to war, it's where the presidents would arrive on their presidential trains, it really was the gateway that now DIA is. And the idea yeah. is, is kind of bringing that gateway back. Mm-hmm. One of, the, one of the, the things that you pointed out to me a couple of years ago that I found really fascinating that I think most people don't appreciate is the, ch- the real um, engineering and technical challenge of reusing Union Station this way because of where it's located in the floodplain in terms of getting these various kinds of transportation all to flow into this one hub mm-hmm. that hasn't had basically many trains at all running into it for many, many years. So just kind of briefly, you know, beyond just that looks cool, they're doing all this work. I mean, what is, you know, another example of something that's taking years upon years, what makes it so hard to reuse Union Station as a train station, even though this is what it's always been? Um, well, there's... There's kind of the engineering issues, and then there's the financial issues. So from an engineering perspective, um, figuring out how to bring all those trains and squeeze them in kind of behind the station and kind of make it all work, that in itself isn't that huge of a problem. I mean, we can figure it out. As they say, if we can put a man on the moon, we can figure out how to do <laughs> X, right? The problem is is that there's a cost to, to that, and the perfect solution is going to have the highest cost, right? And back in 2004, before the Fast Tracks vote, the, union, the original um, Union Station master plan was completed, which envisioned having the bus terminal, the light rail, and the commuter rail 
all underground, and all between Wiwata and Winecoop. Which sounds really cool. Which sounds really cool. I'm sure it would have been fantastic. <laughs> However, the and they didn't really do, from what I understand, they didn't really do an official cost estimate of that. But the people have mentioned to me uh, that that probably would have cost somewhere around about a billion dollars. Now, RTD allotted $200 million in the Fast Tracks budget for the Union Station hub. Hmm. So... How Stingy do you, bastards. So how do you but, – but the hub is necessary. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so – and this is kind of what's really interesting, and this gets into the politics. Uh, from what I understand, uh, you know, RTD was not naive in, in um, understanding that they did not fund the Union Station hub to, you know, to what it would cost. I mean, they, they knew that uh, to a significant degree, right, like $800 million. But – they were afraid that if we had $1 billion of the Fast Tracks budget go toward this hub in downtown Denver, that since they needed to appeal to the entire metropolitan area, their whole taxing district, which includes, you know, six, seven suburban counties, that um, a lot of people might think that too much of the budget is Denver-centric and that they would not vote for it. And so they wanted to have uh, make sure that kind of the bulk of the budget was to sp spread, you know, generously throughout all of the counties um, to garner that suburban support, which was necessary for the whole thing to pass. So it, it did pass. And then uh, the planners and the uh, folks at RTD and others who are looking at, you know, implementing this Fast Tracks plan are now like, okay, so now we have $200 million to build a billion-dollar hub in downtown Denver at Union Station. Well, what's, you know, what, what are we going to do? Well, to make the long story short, essentially what they did was, was they found a way through reconfiguring the location uh, vertically and horizontally of these elements, you know, bus, light rail, and commuter rail, to get that from $1 billion down to about $500 million. That still left us with a $300 million shortfall, but through a lot of hard work by a lot of people and figuring out, scraping together every you know, revenue source we could find, including a generous $300 million loan from the federal government, um, we've made it work. And so it's under construction right now and will open in uh, one year from now. And I actually think, and you, I assume you would agree with me, the solution they came up with actually ended up being quite useful and eloquent in terms of also encouraging development mm -hmm. behind Union Station because what's happening now, uh, light rails two blocks away yeah. from Union Station, and then you have the commuter rail, you see that kind of, that kind of sweeping uh, rail shed going, uh, going in, Right now, um, right behind the station, yeah. and then they use the still underground bus terminal, this kind of circular that kind of connects the two. And it right. becomes this nice corridor that, therefore, and it's also helping to kind of connect the development, uh, the established development of, say, like Lodo with mm -hmm. the development in the Platte Valley, which had long been this kind of, this kind of wasteland, right. which is nice. Now, I'm going to throw out my one conspiracy theory, okay. which I'm sure you've heard. The idea that, you know, that's some of the most now lucrative development around. There's some really kind of big, exciting things going on on these parcels that are right alongside this kind of corridor that connects these rail lines. Yep. Now, some of that is, is I think it's, you know, it's owned by the developers who also came up with this plan mm -hmm. to, kind of, to kind of run this kind of corridor. Mm -hmm. So was it, you know... 
is there anything wrong or could they have come up with this plan on purpose to kind of help kind of pad their pockets with making the land that they already owned, you know, that much more lucrative? Yeah. Well, first of all, the, um, you know, some of the land that uh, is now part of the project, like where the light rail station in, uh, is currently, uh, some of that land was actually owned by those developers, and they contribute that, contributed that land to the project. You know, so, um, again, the task was how do we go from a billion to something we can afford? Um, so one of the ways to do that is was to spread the project out a little bit in terms of kind of just the area it covers, so kind of two blocks instead of it all being concentrated. But like I mentioned earlier, we have this $300 million loan to the federal government. So how are we going to pay that loan back? Well, we're paying that loan back through the increase tax revenues generated by the developments that are taking place in and around the project. So, you know, and, and there's a metropolitan district that covers that whole area, which is essentially is an, an additional property tax above and beyond what the city's basic property tax is. So those property owners uh, that you're referring to, um, they are paying way more property taxes uh, than somebody who's not in, in the Union Station area is paying. Uh, but that is all going to help finance, you know, the project and to pay back kind of the bonds and, and the loans and stuff. So um, are, are these developers going to benefit ultimately from having a, the ability to put a building next to a big train, stop, uh, train station? Absolutely. Uh, but also that was part of the solution. It was how we were able to figure out how to, how to uh, pay for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah there, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. I mean, it's quite often when you do see these <laughs> things, looking from the outside, looking in, you're like, oh, that seems like somebody's making out. But let me. But there's usually an explanation like that. There is, and, and let me tell you that, um, you know, I've had no official involvement in the project, right? I mean, I, I didn't work for a consulting firm that was hired. I don't work for RTD or the city or anything like that. So you um, say, Ken. Yeah. that's right. <laughs> but I've, I've made it my business to kind of know what's going on. That's why yeah, I, right. I, can, I can talk about it. Uh, and I can tell you that this, that the, uh, the number of people who have been working on this Union Station project is staggering. I mean, between all of the people involved from legal and financial and design and engineering and technical and, and you name it. Um, and they're all doing this because they want this to work. I mean, it's, it's, what's, it's what's been required to make this project work. I mean, this is a complicated thing, and it's a big deal. And you don't get it done unless a lot of people spend a lot of time working really hard to figure it all out. And it's really complicated, both from a financial and a technical perspective. And so um, somebody, you know, can sit back and, you know, uh, uh, be critical or cynical about the process or how it happened or what the final result will be. But this project is, is going to be re the result of a lot of people putting a lot of time and effort into it uh, because they believed it's the right thing to do and it's the right thing for Denver. Nice. Yeah. I wanna, Which is awesome. So, so there. So there, Joel. Yeah. Um, okay. Now that, now, that, now that we've put me... In my place, as I usually am. I want to move on. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you, as always, by Illegal Pete's. It's the last week of Illegal Pete's uh, Smother Autism Campaign as part of Autism Awareness Month. 
So please get into your local Illegal Pete's location and ask them to smother your burrito since for every dollop of green chili, a dollar goes to the Joshua School program in Denver and Boulder. Um, I want to talk about one more uh, exciting thing going on downtown with Ken. But before we do, let's take a quick musical break. This is Dragon by A. Tom Collins.
That was Dragon by A. Tom Collins. Uh, his new album, Stick and Poke, is expected this coming July. Uh, back with uh, Ken Truppel to talk about what's going on in downtown. We've been talking about all the transit from Union Station to the new rail lines, but something else is happening, something big, something exciting, mm-hmm. something that you did not see coming, Ken. Oh, yeah, uh, I did. Two the- years ago, two <laughs> years ago, if I have it correct, you wrote something on your blog saying that we probably won't be seeing a big development boom in Denver for a while. And I was right. Two years later is a, is a while. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It is a while. Well, I, 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 like, I, I like you tried to kind of like yeah. cover your butt. Well, it is remarkable, I think, how quickly that the um, that the uh, kind of the economy and the real estate development scene here in Denver has turned around. I mean, because there it really there was really um, nothing going on uh, from the private sector in 2009 and 10. You know, uh, Denver has a um, history, whether it's intentional or not. I think it's just kind of good luck that it seems like every time we have a big bust. It's just when we are beginning a bunch of big civic projects. Hmm. Um, so look at the, uh, the, the the big oil bust of the late 80s. Well, we were right in the middle of planning and getting ready to build a new international airport and a new baseball stadium and a new library and, you know, first light rail line and, you know, kind of all these things. And once again, we have, you know, the economy collapses in 2008. And what's just getting started but Union Station uh, and the new you know, Denver Justice Center and the new Ralph Carr Judicial Center and the History Colorado Museum. And we kind of just had during like 9, 10, and 11 when kind of, you know, things were pretty bleak, we had all these big civic projects going on in downtown. And so, you know, I'd be driving around in downtown in 2010 and everybody's like, oh, woe is me, you know, on the private sector side. And then you're looking around and there's construction tower cranes everywhere. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And, and that's got to help boost something. It morale does. When there's things going on, even it if... It does. Well, and it stimulates the economy. I mean, yeah, those right. are people making a, a paycheck, you know, that's, you know, from, from working on these projects. So ju- then just as those projects are kind of starting to wind down, the economy picks up, and now the private sector has come roaring back, at least in terms of uh, w- primarily one type of devel- development, which is um, apartments. Mm-hmm. So uh, according to my calculations, uh, which you know I did for my blog, um, using 17th and Arapahoe as a good just kind of geographic center point of downtown – and drawing a 1.5-mile radius from that point. Um, there are approximately 4,100 residential units under construction right now. Wow. And if you uh, – and I use kind of January, uh, kind of the beginning of 2012 as my kind of baseline. We've had a little over 1,000 units that have been completed since January 2012. So using, again, 2012, January 2012 as kind of our starting point – as of right now, April of 2013, 16 months, we've got a little over 1,000 completed units, about 4,100 under construction, and about another 1,600, 1,800 um, still on the drawing boards, of which I suspect, you know, maybe half of those units might end up getting built. You know, not all projects make it out of the ground. If they do, and those are finished by, uh, let's say, end of 2014, Okay, 
uh, you'd be looking at in the three-year time, 2012, 13, and 14, uh, somewhere around, you know, 6,000, 6,500 units um, completed. Hmm. Are these people put that, yeah, uh, put that in perspective. I mean, what does that mean? Well, to give you kind of a good idea, to put it in perspective, um, during the entire decade of the 2000s, the aughts, we had a total of about 10,000 residential units added huh. in downtown Denver, you know, kind of the downtown and adjacent areas. And so um, this would represent two-thirds of that total in a three-year period. Wow. And if we were to sustain that through the entire decade, then we'd be looking at probably somewhere, you know, over 20,000, or, well, let's see, yeah, maybe maybe up to close to 20,000 units being added to the downtown area by 2020. Are these people that are, are moving to Denver from elsewhere, are they people in Denver relocating? To, the, 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 the people they expect to, you know, fill these units. Yeah. Uh, it's Well, it's both. I mean, there certainly are people who are kind of moving from the suburbs or elsewhere uh, to downtown. But also Denver is experiencing some pretty strong in-migration just from other parts of the country. Um, Denver led, according to the Census Bureau, I think it was 20, 2009 and 2010, like for a couple of years, during the worst of the recession, uh, Denver was, uh, led the nation in terms of the number of 20, um, 25 to 34-year-olds migrating to any city in the country. They, you know, Denver was number one. Hmm. Um, the, the theory I've heard is that if you're going to be unemployed anyway, you might as well go move someplace where it's cool to live. And you yeah. can smoke pot. And you can smoke pot and yeah. ski, yes. and mountain bike. So, and these people rent apartments as opposed to buy condos. Yeah. So, a lot of the immigration are are younger people who either by choice or they're just not at the stage of their life yet where they're ready to buy um, that they're looking to rent. Um, I mean, the other reason, though, I mean, there's there's different forces going on here. One is simply that the condo market, uh, in terms of for sale, is just not quite fully back yet from the recession. I mean, it's getting better, and housing starts are up, and there's um, property values are increasing, and realtors are reporting that homes are staying on the market now for just hours. A minute, yeah. And, you know, people are There's an inventory problem, is what they exactly. say. So that's all really good signs that, that we're making progress. But the for-sale condo market at the moment is not quite at the point where we're going to be putting up a bunch of high-rise condo Is that usually towers. the case where, where the apartments come first and the condos, or is it just unique situation? Not necessarily. I mean, they're kind of um, – there's some, there's some relationship between the two markets in terms of overall demand for housing. But because the one is really dependent upon the value of property and that resale value, it – has its own kind of dynamic separate from like the rental market. Huh. So, I mean, they're both tied to the economy, but they're not, they don't move perfectly in sync with each other. Um, so right now there's, you know, uh, probably 99% of all those units I mentioned are, are apartments and rentals. Um, we, a, a lot of the 10,000 units that were built in the aughts were for sale. And so you could argue that maybe we didn't build enough apartments during the, the first decade. Also, nothing was getting built from like 08 to 11, so there was just a pent-up demand anyway because you had people still moving into the city and but no new inventory being added. Uh, and, and then you have kind of this larger cultural phenomenon that's taking place throughout the country, including Denver, where people are moving back into the cities, you know, just yeah. from uh, suburban or rural areas. So when you kind of add all of these things together, it kind of creates a perfect storm of like – 
huge construction boom in, in apartments. Mm. Um, and if you look at the numbers in terms of the number of apartment units being developed in downtown Denver as it relates to the entire metropolitan area, downtown Denver is capturing it's like a third or, or you know, it's, it, a significant percentage of the whole metro area's um, apartment rental, uh, you know, construction numbers. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's big. So yeah, Denver stuck at Littlewood, Littlewood. Littlewood. <laughs> where's Littlewood. It's between Inglewood and Littleton. Yeah. It's a very small. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's exciting. So when you drive or walk around downtown, you know, you see, uh, construction going on everywhere yeah. and it's it's pretty exciting are there certain parts of certain neighborhoods that seem to be really benefiting or are there mm-hmm. certain neighborhoods also you seem that are next poised to yeah well you know lower highland i refuse to use the l-o-h-i term yes it's, i don't like that thank you thank you um, for that. so lower highland which full disclosure that's where i live but so i'm not saying this you're saying to, you live in low high to, ah, <laughs> to <laughs> promote my own neighborhood but um lower highland is going crazy with development um yeah. Uh, areas, uh, you know, like Ballpark, uh, uh, River North, River uh, North. Like, of course, Central Platte Valley, you know, stuff behind Union Station. Um, it's really kind of scattered all around town, but it tends to, if you kind of look at a map, and I got a nice map on my blog I did, you know, recently, kind of mapping all these projects, they generally tend to be kind of to the north and west of downtown as opposed to south and east. Mm-hmm. And that's not um, a surprise because to the south and to the east of downtown is where you have the long-established older historic neighborhoods like Capitol Hill and places like that where there are uh, it's already well-established and there may not be an abundance of large infill sites. But when you look to the kind of the west and to the north, those are the areas relative to downtown that were historically industrial you know, or or other types of uses that have gone through change over the years, and so those are the places where there are opportunities for developers to to, to pick up property. Um, so when you look around the ballpark neighborhood, you know you have these old industrial sites, or it was you know used to be an old site and it was a parking lot for the last twenty thirty years. You know those are the properties that offer real potential for developers because they can pick them up uh, at a reasonable cost and and develop them you know, as these kind of up-and-coming neighborhoods. Yeah. One thing I've been curious about is is the architecture that we're seeing. Are we seeing uh, some forward-thinking design in terms of uh, aesthetics or and also, of course, in terms of kind of lead cert- certification? Or is it because this is just the beginning of the comeback folks are trying to find ways to kind of cut, to kind of do the bare minimum and just, just get stuff up and kind of build out to, you know, the sidewalks and these big squares? So, well, um, first of all, everybody is an armchair architect. So, uh, like on my blog, you know, people love to complain about oh, the design of this building sucks or the yeah. land's great, you know. So, I'm not going to kind of really try to you know, debate the architectural uh, value of, of, of all these buildings. But I'd but like you to, to debate every single, the value of every single building. Okay, well, where do you want to start? Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Why is there no spire on top of the spire, but <laughs> yeah. there's a spire on the top of Four Seasons? The tower itself is a spire. Oh, I see. Coming out of the ground. Um, 
Well, I think, first of all, when you have a lot of construction that takes place all at one time, it's going to reflect the, 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 the architecture du jour. Yeah, of, the mood of, of the era, day. Right? So um, you can look back. I mean, you could say the same thing about why is it that in Washington Park almost every single home is a craftsman bungalow? Yeah. Well, that's because it was all built out over, you know, not like all at once, but in a relatively kind of a, a short period of time in the city's history, and that was the architecture of the day. Now, we look back upon that, and we go, oh, we love that architecture. It's so, you know, appealing, and it's, it's weathered well the years, and we, we love it. Then we look at, you know, Capitol Hill, and you say, well, you know, here's all these um, interspersed among all the beautiful mansions and, and historic properties. You know, there's all these, you know, like, kind of blonde brick, 1960s yeah, right. kind of walk-up three-story apartments. And hey, we look right, at that yeah. and we go, oh, my God, those are so ugly, I hate them, right? Yeah. But again, it's, it's, you know, but that was what was being built at the time. And somebody, in theory, somebody back in the 1920s and 30s when everybody was doing Art Deco could have gone, you know... Everybody's just building the same look. Where's the diversity? Where's the originality? Um, everybody's doing the same stuff, right? But now, today, we look back at it, and we're like, boy, wouldn't it be great if we had even more Art Deco neighborhoods because, you know, it was so awesome, right? Well, what, we, what are we going to look ba- uh, 50 years from now, what are we going to look back uh, uh, at this era and say, I don't know? We might say, you looking, know, looking down from our flying cars, right? On the houses, you know, it us. looks good. It looks like crap. I don't know, yeah. but it's it's what it is. Now there are, you know, your question included something about like technology and, and materials. Um, you know, we are seeing uh, uh, a, a lot of n- new facade materials being used in buildings, kind of metal panels and right. pressed concrete boards, and, uh, and there's all sorts of stuff. And some of them are better than other, others. And we'll have to see how they look and, and how they wear over time. <laughs> but it is what it is. And, you know, cities are messy places. And uh, here, here's another factor, too. Um, developers are probably going to spend less money on a rental building than on a for sale building because they know that the population who lives in that building is going to be a little bit more transient. They're going to be less concerned with the um, the style of the building because maybe they're only going to be there for a year or two and move on, as opposed to somebody who's going to buy there and, and, and maybe stay for many, many years and looking at it as an investment. Um, that's not to say that all developers are just using, you know, kind of the cheapest uh, design that they can. Um, it's just that that unless it's a really high-end rental building, the developers are going to try to make it look nice, but they're not going to, you know, break the bank on making a building that people are just going to be renting in for a, a year or two uh, look as, as awesome as possible. So, sure. Yeah, that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. Um, one final note on this is that in any city, like 95% of your buildings are what we call background buildings. They're not intended to be look-at-me buildings. You know, do you really want every building to look like Daniel Leviskin's art museum or something like that? <laughs> I mean, if you did, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd go crazy. You'd have people running through the streets screaming because they couldn't handle it. Yeah. We need to have a kind of a bland utilitarian, utilitarian background to it's the urban fabric of the city, and, and, and it gives it the structure, um, but it doesn't have to be a, 
a, a, an architectural, you know, masterpiece every time. If if one out of, in my opinion, if you get a really solid, awesome building architecturally, one out of twenty, you're probably doing good. Mm. And the rest of it just needs to be decent looking, uh, but it needs to, more importantly, um, have good relationships to the street and to the sidewalk. So they get along. What do you mean relationships? <laughs> yeah. In other words, you want to have a you don't want to have a building that has a long blank wall along the sidewalk. You want to have oh, yes, windows right. and right. You know, transparency to the building. Some and landscaping. Things. Talking about getting yeah. rid of a long blank wall. I was very excited on your blog recently. You noted uh, you announced that they're moving forward with um, filling that last surface lot next to the new art museum or next to oh, yeah. next to the parking lot the garage the yes yeah it's, that seems like a really cool project it's like there's like a five uh, five or seven story like art hotel yeah it's like a three story office building and then a like a five story or six story hotel it'll be so, across the street from the new history Colorado. yeah yeah so and it'll fill in that really last cool. that last gap there that's cool um unfortunately we should wrap things up even though i think we could all keep talking about this stuff for a while sure uh yeah. I want to thank Ken for coming on the show today. Thank you. Uh, check out his blogs at denverinfill.com and denverurbanism.com. Also, you can take part in one of his monthlies. Is it, is it monthly? Well, it's generally twice a month, but oh, it wow. kind of sometimes depends on my, my availability and schedule. But it's once or twice a month, typically. And you, So you run personal tours of Union Station's construction? Yeah, they're, they're public tours. They're, they're Saturday mornings at 10 um, uh, so the best thing to do if you're interested is to uh, check my Denver Infill blog, usually kind of on that Tuesday or Wednesday before, uh, to see if it's going to happen. Um, it's generally the first and third Saturday of the month, but again, sometimes I might be yes. out of town or whatever, and I might switch it around a little bit. But I'll always promote it on the blog. Very specifically, it's going to happen this particular day, and if it's not, then I'm not going to be, you know, I won't be there. And you actually walk through the construction area. Uh, no, yeah. not through the construction oh, area. I mean, if we did that, we'd have to get hard ha hard hats and liability waivers and, and stuff like that. But, uh, but you kind of walk all around it. You yeah, we walk around it. And basically, I just kind of explain the, um, you know, what's going on with the transit stuff and the his historic building and uh, the new development and nice. kind of just kind of good overview. It's about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And recommended donation of $10. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a free tour, but what I do is I seek donations at the end of the tour, um, and 100% of the money that I raise I give to the student chapter of the American Planning Association at UCD, which are which is the student group that uh, is uh, the students in the master's program where I teach, and they use that money to um, hold special events and bring in guest speakers and and just other um, you know activities that are supportive of their. Um, Education and planning. Cool. Um, I want to uh, quickly go around the room, do some love and hates. Do you have a love or a hate today, Ken? <sighs> Not giving me any chance to think about it. Josh, um, well, well, Ken ruminates. Uh, do you have a love or a hate? I do. Um, I have a, both a love and a hate on the same subject. The uh, High Times Cannibal Cup was at 35th. Cannibal Cup? Cannibal, yes. Cannabis. <laughs> High Times can Cannabis Cup. in Littlewood. Cup. The L Littlewood, Littlewood Cannibal Cup? <laughs> um, it, it, was, it was in my neighborhood, essentially, this weekend. And um, I saw this activity and dro drove down, rode down on my bike to see what was going on. It was insane. There were tons and tons and tons and tons of stoners there. Um, 
How do you know they were all stoners, Josh? You can take, you can tell. Okay. It's the cannabis cup. Um, so then there was a big stink um, on Monday, the 22nd, when they, they left. The lots were absolutely covered in garbage and trash. Uh, like, and I, I mean, you could not see 100% ground coverage of trash. And it, Westward wrote about it. Uh, you can see the pictures there. And so I'm hating on both High Times and the property manager because they're both blaming each other for whose responsibility it was to clean it up. And come on, figure this out. If you're going to do that next year, it's fine. I have nothing against it. But figure that out, who's supposed to clean up. What ended up happening is yesterday um, in a snow, with snow on the ground, a bunch of the um, dispensaries came, volunteered, and cleaned the whole place up, and now it looks great. That's awesome. Loving on the volunteers from the dispensaries trying to be good community members and were being good community members and hating on high times organizers and the property owner for not figuring out whose responsibility was to clean up after themselves. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, I have a love this week. I have a love on a Supreme Court decision on Monday, which um, said that the Public Utilities Commission, which regulates uh, taxis here in Colorado, screwed up when they denied 150 licenses to local cab drivers who want to start a company called Mile High Cab. Uh, Now, the backstory here is that Colorado has one of the most backwards cap systems around. It's really hard to start new companies. It's, mm-hmm. it's really beneficial to the existing companies, so much so that in the past half century, since basically the last time we had streetcars here in Denver, there have only been three new taxi companies that have been allowed to start business in all of Denver. It's that, it's, it, it's that hard to start a new company. Now, in 2008, a legislature said, fine, we're going to switch this and try to make it slightly easier for a company to come in. These these, uh, taxi drivers, largely um, uh, like African immigrants, tried to start one. And the judge said, no, Denver doesn't need any more taxis. And then a little while later, he said, though, I will grant Yellow Cab, uh, one of the largest cab companies in Denver, the same company that had been fighting against this, this other company saying that, well, Denver doesn't need more taxis, he granted them 150 new taxis. Mm-hmm. So a Supreme Court decision on Monday said, you know what, PUC, you screwed up. You have to go back and reconsider this and see if these guys can get their own taxi licenses. So yeah. I'm going to love on that. Good. Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a love out to RTD. I think it, you know, it's appropriate considering we're just a couple of days from the grand opening of the West Line. And um, I'm an optimistic person, so I prefer love over hate. So <laughs> I am going to give some love to RTD um, and congratulations to them for uh, their first Fast Tracks line. I expect it will be a success. And, you know, RTD takes a lot of shit. You know, they, they, you know a lot of people, a lot of critics and they don't do everything, you know, exactly right all the time. But it's a lot of people who work really hard to try to deliver a, a, a transit system to a growing city. And uh, I think they do a pretty good job at it. So I'm going to congratulate them on the West Line opening. Cheers. Nice. On that positive note, uh, that's all the love and hate we have time for this week. If you'd like to uh, share a little love or hate, uh, leave us a re message at 720-282-YELL. That's 720-282-9355. Our theme music is by T.J. Miller from his extended play EP. Our web hosting is provided by BlueChannel.com. 
For more information about the Denver Diatribe or any of our guests, including Ken, check out our website, denverdiatribe.com, or search for Denver Diatribe on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Joel Warner, half of my co-host and my guest. Thanks for listening. Have you heard the birds at the words Denver? High average income, roll like big spenders. Affordable housing, good money lenders. Low obesity, no need for suspenders. Check your calendar. Denver.